Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Hey everyone, welcome back. I am trying different way to welcome you back. So apologize if I try one or the other in these episodes. I hope you are, you feel welcome. And this episode is for you all fellow application security people. We have the honor to have Clint Kibler, one of the most kind soul in the application security world and also knowledgeable. He has done two amazing talks and has an email list that I feel ashamed to read every time because I feel the lack of knowledge, but is also an, an enormous source of information that I absolutely love to read. Uh, we're going to discuss this and all the other application security topic and how our world did change from January onward. So I hope you enjoy this episode with a friend and one of the most relevant figure in application security. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. This is your host, Francesco, and today we have an honor to have on the podcast a good friend and, uh, you know, fellow rambler on application security topic, <laughs> Clint Kibler. Welcome to the show. Thank hey. you for coming. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, uh, Clint, we met back in another world, in another time, in January at Upside Cali. Finally, we met face to face and we were talking the other day how different the world in a few months has, has gone. And, and also your world has, has changed. So what have you been up to? And do you want to tell your, our audience a little bit about your stories, what you've been up to, what you're working on, what exciting project other than the one more visible you're working on? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we had interacted on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and I was like, oh man, this is a guy uh, I want to meet. And then we finally did get to meet at Upset Cali, which was awesome. And, uh, yeah, before this started, we were like, oh man, it feels like <laughs> 10 years ago, Ages. but really it was like less than six months ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, since then, um, yeah, I've been, uh, continuing to, uh, do TLDR sec, which is like a sort of security newsletter I do. Um, but I've also, uh, ended up switching jobs. So I was a uh, technical director and research director at NCC Group doing security consulting, um, like pen tests and helping uh, guide and improve security programs for various companies. Uh, and I ended up joining a small uh, static analysis focused startup uh, based in SF, uh, which has been a pretty cool change of pace. Um, so as everything was getting locked down, there were a couple of big changes in my life as well. That's amazing. And I think um, we, we can, we can, Maybe talk a little bit about perspective on how it is to work in a big scale organization and uh, the freedom and also the constraint or the drawback that is 
um, working and, and changing this this world. What do you what, what what have you found exciting in working in this kind of environment versus the environment where <clears throat> where you were before? Yeah, I think there's um, uh, I think there's uh, obviously both strengths and trade offs in both, right? So if you're in a, mm -hmm. a bigger company, you um. There can be some bigger like institutional inertia in terms of to set new policies or to roll out new programs or like prototype new things. You probably need buy-in from more people. There's a lot more sort of like measured planning. Um, uh, conversely, in like a small company, um, like currently, currently I think we're like sub 20 people. So it's like very fast, like the whole company can shift on like a day <laughs> or a week. Um, uh, I think... Let's change sector tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we, we had um, like a customer ask for like a like an enterprise dashboard type thing, and we're like, okay, cool, let's spec that out in like the next week, um, <laughs> where that would be like a major project that would be like multi-quarter at a, a bigger sized company. Um, but but on the other hand, when you're in a bigger company, like making small localized changes when rolled out everywhere can have uh, a huge impact, right? Like mm. say at a big consulting firm, if you're like, oh, let's change our standard methodology for like web app pen tests and if you can get broad adoption for that suddenly like hundreds of pen tests are different because of your uh, small work so uh, i don't think necessarily one is better than the other it's just sort of different and it, it's pretty cool to see both so i'm having a blast <laughs> no fantastic and uh congratulations first of all for the new adventure and yeah, thank uh, you yeah in this period of doom and gloom it's good to have some good news <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, nice to see the um, silver lining. And I do feel very fortunate um, to be doing something I like and to have uh, a job. I know a lot of our colleagues uh, who are incredibly talented uh, haven't been so fortunate just because of cost cutting a bunch of places. Yeah, no, I see. I see some days ago. Well, now it's a few weeks ago. Um, um, was it Airbnb cutting heavily? But they've done an amazing job to to publish all the CV, all the skill set of the people, so they could get rehired uh, quickly. And I think in this period of crisis, we all understand that there will be situation of crisis where organization will just, you know, we can't continue on this this environment. But it's good to help other well their employees. So I put this to them. Yeah, and listeners might want to check out your and Tanya's uh, Mentoring Monday, which often has uh, lots of great Ooh. resources and uh, people hiring. Yes, and yeah, the hashtag uh, Mentoring Monday that unfortunately has been taken over by marketing campaigners, and now it's called <laughs> hashtag, it's, it's the yeah. way it is. hashtag Cyber Mentoring Monday. And I want to share with you the kind of conversation that we went with Tanya. What should we call it? Cyber, but cyber is wrong. <laughs> Ultimately, we managed to settle on Cyber Mentoring Monday and also for new starter in cyber, we have hashtag ask, uh, ask Cyber, where we try to reply to questions whenever we find those two hashtags mentioned. And it has been going on quite strong and quite well. Nice. But maybe um, if, I'm, if I'm a new starter in, in cyber and what kind of... From a fantasy perspective, I guess is is you is more close to your your work. Where where would you suggest anybody that is listening to start? Yeah, in a pen testing specifically, or in uh, cyberspace. But let's assume I want to become a pen tester. What is the logical step that you would recommend a researcher or a pen tester to uh, follow, if you want? Just suggestion, your trick. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one. 
uh, important takeaway is that um, people talk about like security uh, being like one industry, but really there's like many, many roles within security. And I think similar to say medicine, uh, it's impossible to get good at all of them. Right. So you have like exploit development, reverse engineering, being like a SOC or IR person, being a pen tester, uh, being like a security engineer who's writing lots of code. There's like, you know, maybe 15 to 30 different job roles within security. So just um, sort of implicit in your question was like, you know, to be a pen tester. So I think that's a useful way to think about it, because if you come into it like I want to get into security, um, mm -hmm. you're going to spend years learning just this much of like everything and it's going to be very hard to get in so i think if i was wanting to this is advice i wish uh, i had had when i was first um interested in getting into um the security community is like spend some time looking at like what are all the different jobs within security and i think tanya and a few others have um, some good resources on this but basically mm -hmm. figure out like what are the buckets that i could work in uh, and then figure out which of those might be most interesting to you and then like try to focus on learning uh those things so specifically for pen testing um uh, there are many different types of pen testers. Like you could be testing mobile applications or web applications or networks yeah. or other things. Um, so in, in terms of being most broadly hireable, um, I feel like becoming good at web application pen testing is probably good because companies have lots of web apps that need testing. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to do pen testing, I would start with web app pen testing. And if I was going to do web app pen testing, I would probably... Um, uh, there's a book that's a little bit old now um, called the Web Application Hacker's Handbook, um, second edition yeah. now. Uh, I, I stumbled across at some stage. Yeah. Yes. I haven't read it, but I stumbled across it's it. It's super long. It's like 800 pages. Uh, and and some of the sections don't apply as much anymore. There's like a bunch of like ActiveX, ActiveX stuff and like maybe some Flash stuff. So there's like a couple of chapters that you should just ignore. Uh, but but you never world... you never know you never know. I've listened to that with Cobol, so Cobol and TLC. So you never know when some of these stuff might come useful. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, but overall, I think the mindset and methodology uh, is really good. Um, yeah, so I would become familiar with like uh, either Zap or Burp Suite, and then mm -hmm. uh, there's tools like Webgoat or um, Google Greer or um, the uh, Portswigger Web Security Academy that has a series of exercises. Um, so basically I would come at it like from two angles. One is like learn more about how the web works. And then the other is like learn about vulnerability classes like cross-site scripting, CSRF and stuff like that. Um, and OWASP has a lot of good resources too. Um, and also your mailing list is a fantastic <laughs> lot of resources. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if you go to tldrsec.com, I have like a free weekly a newsletter where I share like here's the latest tools and blog posts and different things. Um, uh, I, honestly, I haven't really been recommending people who are like just getting into security to join it. Like there is a lot of good stuff in terms of oh here's what's going on. But um, to be honest, I don't specifically target people who are new to security. I kind of write mm -hmm. like I assume you sort of have some basic familiarity with things. Um, but a couple of people who are just new to security have reached out to me and said they found it useful. So feel free to check it out if you want to. Yeah, no, it's great. Maybe you can add the section. If you're starting here, that's, that's the basic stuff that you can replay back. But it's good to, to target an audience and to focus on an audience. And definitely yours is, is a lot of good goodies and good to keep up date. <laughs> I have, yeah, I've had a couple of people say that it stresses them out a little bit because they feel like there's so <laughs> much there's, there's so much they need to follow up with. They're like, 
uh, one friend of mine, Caleb, was like, uh, yeah, I feel like I need to dedicate a whole day. Like Sundays, I just go through your newsletter. And Sometimes I'm terrified things. to open it up and say, what have I not learned this week? <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I open it up. It's like, oh, geez, so much information. Yeah, you and can always go back to it. I know, but it's like we've been bombarded ultimately because of a lot of conference that we had um, <clears throat> are getting cancelled or, well, 2020 is getting cancelled, <laughs> shall yeah. we say. Um, we're getting a lot of events online and sometimes it's fatigue. I don't know about you, but I feel fatigued by the amount of stuff that I want to be in and I can't because they're happening in parallel. It's crazy. Yeah, at first I was very excited about all the virtual conferences because I was like, oh, now I can go to all of them without needing to like physically go there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, to be honest, I stopped. I've attended a few uh, and they've been great, but I have sort of stopped at least for the time being just because, yeah, Zoom fatigue um, <laughs> is a real I thing. I guess so. Yeah. So how did you get uh, into application security specifically? How did you get excited about application security? Why it is such an interesting topic versus, I don't know, network security or other, or other field? What, 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 what drive your passion around that? Yeah, I, I got into security um, sort of by accident, actually. Um, I was a, I think, freshman or sophomore in college, and uh, I saw that there was this um, uh, graduate class in security. Um, mm -hmm. that I was like, oh, well, I just want to sit in and see what it's like. Um, not like take it officially because that's probably too hard. <laughs> um, and uh, just listening to it, uh, pretty much from day one, I was uh, just enthralled by how uh, interesting it was and sort of like the combination of understanding things at a deep technical level, but also like breaking assumptions and uh, sort of like in a way kind of being like Neo in the matrix where it's like you see the ones and zeros and you're like bending it to your will to, to do something the system <laughs> didn't intend. I, um, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that. Entering <laughs> in cybersecurity is like being, you know, bending the zero and one and making it to your own will. God, that's good. You can put it in the next email list. <laughs> yeah, uh, I will. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I was just Im immediately fascinated by it. And uh, basically, ever since then, I tried to do internships in security and get jobs in security. Uh, in grad school, I focused in security. So I basically audited this class, audited this class by accident, and then it sort of changed the, uh, <laughs> the direction of the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think um, I, I guess another metaphor I like to think of is um, like if you if you play board games with a group of your friends, there's always like this one person who uh, reads the rules very closely, and then they they do this strategy that's like technically not against the rules, but it really like breaks how the game should work in a way that gives them an unfair advantage and makes it very unfun for everyone else. Um, and 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 that's basically security. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor and then we return back. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization, and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? 
visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. I was having an argument with one of the lead engineers and the whole argument was around uh, calling hacker hackers. Like hacker is not a security thing, it's a mindset of effectively taking things apart and reinventing it in different way. And we got this negative annotation because of black hoodie, because of hacker, because of malicious actors and uh, adversaries versus uh, defenders and so on uh, to call everybody an, a hacker. But a hacker is a thinker. So maybe we should call ourselves thinker rather than hackers and everybody can be, belong to the community of hacking. Yeah, I think uh, I may be misremembering this, but I believe the origin of the word hacker was actually because of some uh, people at MIT who would call each other hackers when they were able to uh, do something very clever with a piece of technology, like, oh, that was a really cool hack, or like, the system didn't intend to do this like crazy combination of things, but you put something together amazing, and it was like a sort of um, term of like, oh, wow, this was an amazing, cool thing you did. That was, you're a hacker because you did something really cool. And it was only, I think, years later that it sort of took on this negative uh, black hoodie um, yeah. connotation. And and I love to see that still website. Uh, there is one favorite, <clears throat> one one of my favorite one that is uh, IKEA hack. Whenever I was trying to build my furniture and you know <laughs> assemble it in a, in a creative way, because you know with IKEA furniture you always spend like a handful of bolts and things, and you don't never know what to do with it. So it's like, um, but no, it's, it's it's a great way to think uh, uh, as a broader spectrum, and also the other way around. I think you can bring an external view in cybersecurity if you are coming from a lawyer perspective or a finance background or other background or people that wanna you know, repurpose themselves, they can because it's that mindset that I think we need to push strongly. Yeah, it's definitely a lot about the mindset. Um, yeah, I think being a good security person is sort of two things. One, understanding technology or willingness to learn. And then the other is the, the hacker mindset. Sort of, mm. you just need both. And anyone can learn both. It's not it's not magic. No, but you can't learn passion. So I was having an, uh, a discussion with uh, Derek from Applications, um, Application Security Weekly. And um, we had this argument about, or discussion if you want, about can you go in cybersecurity because of the money or because of passion? And which one would drive you the most? And my, my view was, um, well, you kind of need uh, the passion because the money is going to reach a, a top limit or, or an upper limit at, the, at a certain point. But the passion, you need to put the time in to actually, it's, it's not a nine to five job. It's community, it's research, it's keep on innovating. And, you know, it's, what's your view on it? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think originally the security industry was sort of formed by a bunch of hobbyists and people who just mm -hmm. loved it and did it for fun. And I think that security is interesting in that it's an industry that I think disproportionately has people who are um, really passionate about it. And then it's, it's like a love as well as a job. Um, but as we mature and grow bigger and obviously become very profitable uh, as an industry, I think that there are definitely more people joining who it's just like a job. They're like, well, like, it's okay. It, it's not something I'm going to read about on the weekends, but it pays well. And um, this may be controversial, but to be honest, I think that that's fine. Like if you're uh, 
willing to put in the time to be good enough and mm -hmm. you don't necessarily feel the drive to learn everything and be one of the best uh in the field like that's totally cool like that's fine um i don't think you should feel like you have to spend uh, a million hours a week um but i do think if you look at the people who are the very top in any industry not just ours um those yeah. are always going to be people driven by passion like it's never the best people are never going to be driven by money. Um, I think there's been a bunch of psychology studies that show that like extrinsic motivation, like money accolades and things like that, uh, only get you so far and are not sustainable long-term. So yeah, I don't know. Don't get fulfilled. Yeah. In summary, I think the best people are primarily passion driven, but there are people who are more just money or stable job driven. Um, and I think that's okay. Yeah, no. And I think, Looking at it from your perspective, I think we need, we have so many shortages in talent. <laughs> yeah, we need more so many positions. <laughs> exactly, we absolutely <laughs> need more people. So we can't expect always the top of the class. And it would be completely unreasonable and uh, stressful <laughs> to do well to have a very competitive environment or a consistent competitive environment. And actually, that, that brings me to another topic. You being in effectively the heart of engineering so the heart of silicon valley uh san francisco how stressful it is to actually be in that place and the continuous push and innovation and how do you balance that with actually a life <laughs> <laughs> yeah um this may be a um psychology quirk or defect more than it is necessarily uh, living in the Bay Area. But uh, <laughs> I've often thought, even maybe back to uh, college, um, I've always felt like I was sort of behind. Like there were, uh, I actually started programming kind of late. Um, I messed around with it a little bit in high school, but uh, only in college did I start really getting into computer science. And uh, there were people in my classes who had been coding a lot since they were like 12. Right. So they're like really? way better than me. Um, and I was like, oh, I need to like work harder to catch up to them. But because they're working the same amount that I am, you know, they they started here and I'm starting here. So it's just like, you know, they <laughs> catching just, gap. <laughs> yeah, they, they keep the gap. And um, so I, I guess and in grad school, I sort of saw that, too. And I feel like there's a lot of people I know in the Bay Area who are just way, way better than me. Um, so I, I feel personally driven to get better. Uh, both because I want to get better, but also I feel like if I'm not putting in extra time, I feel like other people probably are. Um, I think this is sort of a, I wouldn't say necessarily super healthy or the right way to think about it, but just to be like totally honest, that's a uh, part of how I think about it. Um, but I do think it's very valuable to, uh, so if you want to be um, the top of your field or not the top, but if you want to be like quite good, uh, I think mm -hmm. one strategy that's very effective is like find places where everyone is very good. Like find the place where you're going to be the very middle of the road and you're going to get brought up. Um, so like, for example, so you're always pushed. Yeah. You're always pushed. Like basically just to succeed or to not fail, you have to be very pushed. Um, so I, I try to go places where uh, I like need to struggle just to survive, um, to be like middle of the road. Um, <laughs> like, like for example, one of the reasons why I went to NCC group, um, I worked out of the office that was formerly Isaac partners, uh, in San mm -hmm. Francisco. Um, a lot of the people from there went on to be like, you know, head of security at Yahoo, Facebook, uh, Airbnb, uh, like all these like 
big name uh, companies. Like I saw the people mm -hmm. who went out of there and they were all incredibly successful and super, super smart. And I was like, oh, I should go there. And uh, if I make it there, or at least if I don't fail, um, <laughs> even, like I don't have to be the best person, but even if I'm like top 50% compared to everyone not there, um, I'll be pretty good. Um, so I, I kind of think, way to see it. <laughs> I think of the Bay Area sort of like that. Like if you can go to the Bay Area and be like reasonably okay, um, like not even the best person or like top 10%, but like top 50%, like compared to non-Bay Area places, you'll be like very good. Um, no, I, I, I like that perspective. But how do you keep the, how do you keep alive with this consistently pushed environment? How do you keep a healthy balance? So for everybody that is, uh, externally to the Bay areas, I, I find that the lack, especially in, in certain areas, the lack of that continuous push and I crave for that. Um, but not everybody can cope with that. So I see a lot of people that are struggling and specifically in our world, the work-life balance, the mental health is coming into place a little bit more. And I think in an environment that is continuously pushing, help you flourish, but also you need to cope with the fact that you're never going to be good enough or you're always going to find the room where you're not the smartest person. And sometimes you are the not even the, in the middle person. How do you deal with that mentally, psychologically, to actually never going to be good enough? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm uh, opening up a lot of, about a lot of things. I guess it's because we're friends and uh, I'm like, ah, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, although other people listen to it later. Um, one thing that I think is interesting and uh, I, I think heartening to me is that a lot of people in the security industry have uh, imposter syndrome. So mm -hmm. people are like, oh, you know, other people think that I know a lot and that I'm this awesome hacker, but like, I feel like I don't know anything and everyone knows a lot more than me. Um, I, pretty much everyone I know uh, feels like that, or at least a lot of people. And uh, I especially, <laughs> yeah, <I'm see>. <laughs> yeah, same. <Hi. laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I confess. Uh, and so I uh, often think that like right before uh, I go on stage to give a talk, I gave a bunch of talks last year. I'm like, man, everybody probably already knows this. They're going to be bored um, or like they'll point out all these flaws in it. And um, it was only after a couple of years of um, just having very honest conversations with people who uh, are like very well known in security, have given lots of keynotes and are like widely regarded as being like very, very successful and hearing them say that they feel like imposters. I was like, well, like I, I, I perceive, uh, like I perceive my career to be like here. And I'm like chatting with all these people who are like, like, you know, internationally known in security who are like, yeah, I just sometimes feel like I don't know enough. And, uh, it didn't necessarily change how I felt about myself, but it made me realize like, you know, it's okay to feel this way. Other mm -hmm. people who have much bigger sort of external accolades than I do still feel that way. So uh, I think there's some comfort in knowing that it, it's, you're not alone. This is not like an isolated experience that only you have that even as you grow and get better, um, other people still probably feel that way too. So like, you know, we're all feeling the same way together. So like, it's okay. Um, I, I can't echo more your, uh, your pre-stage <laughs> feeling, especially <laughs> in, in stages like upset Kelly, when you walk in and you know that other people have talked big or other RSAs is another example. So location like that, walking in a stage and saying, oh, Clint is talking there. I'm going to be shit because it's so high. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I felt a little bit like that when I was pre-pre to my talk. I went to your talks like, 
<laughs> well, I was like, I hope that I have something unique and good to say after, because I read your abstract and I was like, this reads like I would write. I'm like, this is great. Um, like, these are all the things that I want to know about. Um, so and same here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. And and I think it's, it's good to be pushed and, it, and it's good to also understanding that we are an extremely challenged and challenging environment, pushed environment and to be a little bit easier on yourself because you perform much better and to realize you're not alone. Everybody's going through the same struggle. They've been there. So it's, it's a journey and it's good to share the journey. That's why I know it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to open up on some of these things, but I know for people that are listening, maybe if I had the chance to listen to those things, I would have speak to more conference early in the days and share the knowledge, even just, you know, going into the stage and try to run that because help you pushing your, um, first of all, I love doing presentation because it makes you doing research. I don't know about you, but I go into a crazy amount of detail whenever I'm going to do a presentation, because as you say, you're going to present with technical people and say, man, they're going to drill me or they're going to grill me with questions. <laughs> I need to know everything, every single angle. So. And there is always the guy that asks the question is like, damn, I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah. Some, uh, yeah. Along those lines, some feedback I've heard recently that I think is very interesting is, um, like the amount of rigor you have for like notes, uh, you create for yourself is much lower. Basically, as soon as you, uh, put something out there, either like a blog post or a talk, um, the quality like doubles immediately because like you're no longer satisfied with the level of rigor you had before. And you're like, you know, somebody is going to be like an expert in this one niche. So I better make sure to like head off any criticism or argument they might have. So I think one of the best ways to get better is to force yourself to share things with the world, like yeah. podcasts, blog posts, talks, um, just because your standard for quality will go way up um, when you know that other people are going to look at it. So it's also a forcing feedback is super useful. Yeah, and that brings up in continuous integration, continuous feedback. So your your new your new world, your new code scanning world, and your new effective adventures. So, what is the what, why we keep on getting it so complicated or so wrong? Security scanning or application security or whether it's, it's always so controversial, especially with developers. Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor, and then we return back. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization, and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. I keep on hearing, well, code scanning, code scanning is crap. It's like, it's never going to work. What's your view on it? Why we, why from a security professional, we keep on getting it challenged or never going to get it right? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think it depends what your goals are and how you look at it. And I think there's also been a shift in the industry. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about those in more detail. But I, I think one thing I'd like to call out is that developers aren't 
totally opposed to code scanning, right? Because they use linters all the time, right? So you want to know, like, um, I don't know if you're writing uh, Go or Java or something that's statically mm-hmm. typed, you want your IDE to be like, oh, this is like a broken type or you're missing a semicolon. Like developers already use linters and they're great. And linters are basically lightweight static analysis tools, right? So it's it's not totally that they don't like code scanning. They just uh, have strong opinions about usability, which I think they should. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, so I'm going to uh, state a strong position statement, and I, I want you to criticize it. Uh, <laughs> so Go for it. So historically, uh, the security industry has been very focused on finding vulnerabilities. Um, like if you look back to the beginning, um, you know, the start of the security industry was mostly like pen testing, security consultants, people who came in to break things. And mm-hmm. in the early days of the web, um, you know, every login page had SQL injection. XSS was like every single field, right? Like you, you walk into a pen test and you're like a Tony Stark in the Iron Man movie pressing a button and like all the rockets come down. It's like, like explodes, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's just like game oh, over. Oh, the everyone. good old days. <laughs> yeah, the good old days. And um, so if you think back to early 2000s or like the 90s and you think of now, it's like a world of difference, right? And let's think about what's happened in the meantime. So, uh, you know, we have a bunch of automated tools like SAST and DAST tools, so static and dynamic mm-hmm. analysis tools. We have fuzzing. We have um, all these different things. But I would argue one of the biggest reasons, um, even above and beyond these additional tools, that security has gotten better systemically, scalably, uh, is that frameworks uh, are better. Right. So it used to be in Rails, you had to do like H and then whatever the argument was to output in code. So you had to remember to do something for it not to mm-hmm. be vulnerable. And now everything is output encoded, except if you disable it. So rather than finding uh, a lack of uh, doing the right thing, you're just finding like, did you opt out of the thing that I built that was secure for you? So it's, it's, the, same, it's the same thing, but the other side of the coin. That is... It's funny that you bring it up because it was one of the last conversation, one of the last argument I had with a bunch of very highly skilled developer that says, why do we keep on developing in this antiquated framework? Why don't we bring, instead of just spending money in, in Java and JavaScript and in very old version of JavaScript and, and Tomcat or very, very old antiquated methodology, why don't we just save their money and bring everybody on the new level of framework. So I kind of agree with you. Absolutely. We got better because the framework went better, but also the technology that we implement got more complex. So there are more ways, I think, to attack the speed at the way we develop things are more fast. And I think with DevOps, I don't know your argument. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a, a, a mm-hmm. statement that I want yeah. you to argue, but DevOps has made us less secure or a little bit less secure. Mm-hmm. And we completely wiped out the architectural function that is the long-term strategic view to build solid things. And we totally embrace this fast-paced, not everybody gets this right or wrong, but a lot of organizations kind of embrace the DevOps and say, well, screw everything else, let's go fast. Yeah. And I keep, I keep on saying, let's go fast, but securely. And it's kind of clash. What's your view on, on if you want 
architectures versus DevOps versus pure, um, you know, thinking about stuff. Yeah, I really, I really like that point. Um, and I think there's trade-offs, right? So there are certain um, like big picture architectural flaws that if you don't structure things in the right way from the beginning, it's going to be a massive engineering effort to fix later. Um, like uh, at NCC, there were a couple of projects I did that were like, well, there's this fundamental like because you've structured Flaws. things this way, like you need to basically rewrite half of your things to to solve this vulnerability because it's not like a fix this class or method. It's like how these things connect on the whiteboard is just it's wrong. logical. Um, yeah. So so I will say like DevOps definitely. If you don't plan enough and you make one of those mistakes, certainly it can be worse mm -hmm. for security. But I would say overall, I think when done well, DevOps makes security better because. Uh, if you find a bug, you're releasing weekly, weekly or daily or whatever, and like you can fix it very fast. So like the time of uh, open known vulnerability is much less. Whereas if you're releasing quarterly or every six months, it's like, hey, we found this like critical pre-auth RCE. Well, cool. We'll we'll ship the fix in six months, <laughs> right? That's a that's a huge vulnerability window. Whereas if you're making constant changes, you can be like, oh, this is a critical issue. We'll just like make a patch and like it's fixed today. Um, so I think, I don't think it's necessarily universally better or worse, but I feel like DevOps when done well is better for security because, um, and, and to your point, like you were like, how do we do security better and faster? Um, and, and I think that's ultimately modern security's job is, is not to focus on finding problems, but to be, um, sort of builders and enablers that allow security teams to, or sorry, enable developers to build software quickly and complete the features that they need, uh, but also securely. So we're more like enablers than we are people who are holding them back and trying to find bugs. And I think a big way to do that is um, to build like secure frameworks, to build secure libraries, basically anything that is hard or dangerous to do build like a secure easy way to do that and then give it to them consumable yeah very consumable and then to, to tie it back to the continuous code scanning um I, I think from what i've seen at companies that do code scanning well or that do it in a way that developers don't hate it uh <laughs> to be more precise uh <laughs> is that like you're not necessarily running these like super heavy like multi-day or like a week-long scans that are you know doing complex interprocedural data flow analysis and and pointing out all these bugs that may or may not be false positives. Instead, mm -hmm. you're doing sort of lightweight quick checks that are saying like, hey, you just pushed a new like pull request. Uh, I'm gonna check that in like a couple of seconds or like a minute or two. Give you some feedback right on the PR like in the system you're already using. You don't need to go to another system. Uh, so it's like when the developer still has context, when they're still thinking about it, uh, it's more, you might not try to find every vulnerability, but the things that you do cho choose to focus on are very high signal. So like, if you think of like, here's like a pie chart of all the vulnerabilities that you could try to find, like you maybe only focus on this segment of it, but when you, but when you report, it's always true. So you sort of, you scope the problem a bit. Um, and and, yeah. and you mentioned contextual, contextual view or, or IDE or while you develop, you get code scanning versus, you know, the big increment of full analysis where you might find 2,000 vulnerabilities of which maybe 1,000 are, are correct. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. It's almost 40 minutes in.
this podcast can't be here without you guys. And it's a massive thank you that I want to give you from the bottom of my heart. I can't keep the conversation short, unfortunately, with Clint, because we we explore so many amazing subjects. Stay with us and listen on amazing story about how Google think about the fixed rate, how the suggestion about how to run a modern AppSec work, or the use of modern language from the get-go. And again, thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you. Goodbye. Enjoy. In your view and your experience, what do you find it more powerful? The full-blown analysis to say, well, we we found all the vulnerabilities, now let's assess them, and we are relatively sure that we probably have found the majority of it, or let's do an incremental scan or IDE integrated scan, uh, and IDE for who is listening is effectively the development environment where everybody writes code, and a code scanning analysis inside will highlight effectively a potential vulnerability while you write. Um, which one do you find more powerful or, or more actually not powerful, effective from a developer perspective? Um, so I think there was um, some papers by Google and maybe Facebook, or at least Google, I think it's called Tricorder, where basically they were measuring the fix rate for developers. Like, mm-hmm. like if we tell a developer, here's a bug, how likely are they to fix it? Because whether or not it's a vulnerability is kind of less important than if they actually fix it, <laughs> right? You could, you could accurate, like, like hypothetically, let's say you found 100% of the vulnerabilities in a magical world that doesn't exist. Let's say you could do that. Yes. Um, if they don't fix it, like, does it matter that you found it? Like, kind of, but, but maybe not. Um, so, well, but reporting is going to report on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, but, but I think what, what the study found is that when you give developers faster, immediate feedback, they're like 70% more likely to fix it. Um, like, uh, it's like, hey, you're about to commit this code. You just wrote it. Here's some feedback right now. The likelihood that they fix versus like you give them this report like two to four weeks later, like much less likely to fix. Um, but so I, I think there's trade-offs. Um, so you listed, I think, three buckets of types of code scanning. So one is like, mm-hmm. say, in the IDE. Another yeah. is maybe uh, when you push your code to GitHub, GitLab, or whatever source control system you have. And then there's like a out-of-band, uh, bigger, deeper, sort of heavyweight scan that's maybe daily, mm-hmm. weekly, or something like that. Um, I think there's strengths for each one. So um, I think that... Uh, in like the IDE or like pre-commit or something like that uh, is very valuable and that get it gives developers immediate feedback and they're more likely to fix it. Uh, but if you do that, it has to be very fast and very high signal or else it's going to be yeah. too high friction and, and they'll hate you. Um, on uh, CI, it, it can be um, a little bit slower. Um, so instead of like seconds, maybe it's like minutes or something. Uh, and you can maybe have a slightly higher fi- false positive rate because maybe a security engineer will help triage or something. Um, but I think both of those, the set of things you can look at is going to be smaller than like a, a heavyweight, deeper daily or weekly scan, just because mm-hmm. like to do very complex analysis, you just need more time. Fundamentally, this is like, uh, just like computer science. I guess one interesting thing I found at NCC is, um, a number of companies had me come in and look at how they were doing, um, using their SaaS tool. And they were like, hey, mm-hmm. we're spending a lot of money, like say 100 to 500K a year for licensing. Uh, and it's giving us a bunch of results, but it's very low signal. Can you help us like do a better job? Fine tuning. Uh, fine tuning. And in some cases I could, but um, 
it was interesting that in many of the issues that were true positives that it found, um, uh, oh, backstory, like I love static analysis, like it's my jam. So, <laughs> so like when, so I, I need to preface that like before I say this, but, uh, cause I, I wanted the answer to be like, like, oh, I'll come in and then the answer will be like, let's do some cool, awesome, fancy static analysis. That, that was the answer that I wanted to be like, but, but when I looked at the data, when I looked at the true positive bugs, the tools found, and as like, if I put my AppSec engineer hat on, I was like, mm -hmm. how would I prevent this class of vulnerabilities from ever happening? Um, like 90% of the time, I was like, probably you should just build a secure by default way to do this and then do like a lightweight check to make sure that this never happens. Like you could find this via complex data flow, but your false positive rate and the amount of time you need to triage is, is going to make it not worth it. You should just build a secure version and then do that. So instead of scaling or instead of focusing too much on code scanning, is doing the code scanning in the, in the various methodology, IDE, incremental uh, link to ICICD, and maybe weekly on a full scan of daily, but um, trying to push libraries that are secure, so methodology of interfacing with services that are secure by default, or architecture like key management that, that can serve everybody in a secure way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, of the companies that I've seen have really scaled security, um, like who have done awesome work in eliminating total vulnerability classes, like, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like Google, Netflix, uh, Facebook, um, DocuSign, uh, Morgan Roman had a cool talk about this, like all these companies that have like eliminated vulnerability classes, the answer has almost never been use a fancy bug finding tool. It's been like, <laughs> build a secure by default framework, and then make sure that people use it. Um, but isn't that a, a, a kind of, I always see, I, I build a, a, a maturity matrix, if you want for that, mm -hmm. and that is my nirvana, that is my maturity level file, where you say you're completely independent, you already are experiencing bug bounties internally, you already do your CDF internally, you already do code scanning in the various probable way, you're measuring it, how effective they are. So at that stage, I think it's recommended, but would you actually be courageous enough to actually flip it the other way around. So you want to start an application security program, you talk to us and say, well, let's crop code scanning, or maybe let's buy a cheap code scanning. We run it on a very limited amount, and let's just do secure by default. Yeah. Uh, How would you sell that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> let's sell this thing. Let's sell this with uh, a CISO, a random CISO. How would you sell this view versus the traditional view of we need tool to actually measure because we need KCI because we need to measure and so on. Yeah, you raise a, a very good point in criticism, which is like, yes, this is a great idea, but it takes a huge engineering investment and upfront mm -hmm. time. Uh, and to that, I would say like, absolutely, yes. Um, that's why a lot of the companies who've done it, you would say have a, a non-trivial size security team. They put in a lot of time over many years to build this up. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's something necessarily you start with or that you get to quickly but i think long term in terms of like what does the what does the vision of success looks like over say two to five years not like this quarter when you're first starting um it, it's a very effective scalable approach but it's not necessarily easy to do first um, because it requires you know cycles where you're not like totally busy fighting fires right you need you need like a you need time and bandwidth need to do it yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, it's not necessarily, I think that you can get some of the value by adopting modern languages and frameworks from the start. 
um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you don't have to build as much yourself. But uh, but I think this is sort of more of like a you have like five plus appsec engineers and not like you have one or like you're the CTO who's also the security person uh, sort of thing. So if you want is is a maturity where if I can wrap it up is you start with some metrics, start with some code scanning, start interacting with your engineers, build them up, and then you mature to actually start measuring things. And then ultimately you get to the Nirvana where um, you get engineers to look at multiple pieces of code and say, well, we could solve A, B, and C, and D by just having, I don't know, a key management or a library that consume these functions specifically or can serve this piece of code to multiple applications and that's the secure way to do it. Like encryption, instead of reinventing the encryption, let's use a library, standardized libraries across the board. Yeah, and actually, that, that, that brings me to the topic that I love a lot and is open source libraries and standardization of libraries across the board versus completely, um, if you want redneck engineering or reckless engineering, go, let's go out and let's build everything with whatever we can. What do you think about standardization of open source or a set of libraries versus whatever? Just go out in the wild. We're going we're gonna to assess it later. What's your view on it? What's more effective? Yeah, as um, <clears throat> I think as technologists, we love building our own thing. Like it's it's fun to build it from scratch. <laughs> um, I, I would say, uh, assuming that there are options that are mature and stable and have like a good community behind them, um, I would say generally using existing things is better, unless it's a core business um, driver, like a core business differentiator. Like unless mm-hmm. it's unique to your problem domain and vertical. I would say probably using an existing thing is better. Um, and I would say, especially so for crypto. Uh, I think the common security yeah, advice ne- is like, ne- don't roll ne- your own crypto ever. Crypto. <laughs> yeah, you should never, unless you have like a PhD in cryptography, you should not be writing your own crypto probably. And even in that case, you should you should uh, double check your sanity about writing your own crypto. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Bottom line, don't write your own crypto. But I've seen environment where, especially in large scale organization where you have bunch of development team that are not synchronous on the use. They, they all want to use the same thing, but they find 2000 methods of, of, of implementing mm-hmm. or, or using it. Like an open source library, you can solve, I don't know, um, let's pick an, an example. Uh, um, you can build your own web front end or you can, you can build your own web engines, or you can use one of the default one or, or so on and so forth. And how do you convince um, the engineering community that the benefit of standardization because you actually can dedicate time of assessing one thing from a security perspective versus going the wild and you know choose whatever we want and we will evaluate. Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> one potential argument that some engineers may find reasonable is um, there's a, a maintenance cost for like, let's mm-hmm. say you're like, we don't want to use Express or Django or Rails. We want to build our own web framework. It's like, well, cool. But like, we're going to have to maintain that for the rest of time, <laughs> right? Like that's <laughs> it's, it. it's, it's hugely costly. And um, also if you're using existing standardized things, when you hire new people, it's more likely that they will have familiar, familiarity with it who can get up to speed quickly. Um, so it's like, potentially um, allows people to start and be more productive quickly and also decreases long-term costs, which ultimately a lot of things is about costs, right? Uh, yeah. Even though we're like, let's make it perfectly secure. Ultimately, it's about reducing business risk. 
So yeah, no, I, I, I like I like that approach. And business risk is uh, cost and is security risk and is a lot of other factors like not going to market, for example, and the speed of of implementing certain things. Yeah, and I I, I guess I I <laughs> just to to quickly jump back to continuous code scanning for like two seconds. Uh, <laughs> we completely drifted apart. You knew that that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I knew it, but uh, we should continue drifting. But I was like, I'm just going to wrap it up. So to, to, to sort of summarize Close everything, it up. I, I think, so originally, big focus on heavyweight analysis that find bugs, mm -hmm. modern approach, secure defaults that prevent classes of bugs. Um, so I think that's good, but you also need to have a lightweight enforcement uh, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that you're doing the right thing. Like, are you using the secure wrapper library that we wrote for you? And that is uh, organization specific. So uh, like if you have an internal library that your developer should use, like that's not going to be a tool or that's not going to be a check that a commercial tool has because it's specific to your org. So what you want yeah. is something fast and lightweight that's easy to customize. Um, so my company, uh, R2C, has an open source tool called SEMGREP. Uh, you can find it at semgrep.dev, which just uh, redirects you to GitHub. Uh, but basically, the idea is uh, it's like grep, but code aware. So you can say, mm -hmm. find methods that have an argument like this, or find methods that call foo before bar or something like that. It basically, so you can build your own custom rules. It's just, yeah, like I, I could teach you to write custom rules in like 10 minutes. Uh, oh, it's like, great. it's very easy. Um, but so basically, it's it's purposefully not doing the complex, slow analysis that other tools are doing because our view is that you should be instead focusing on secure defaults and then we'll help you make sure that they're used. So it's like, it's a strategic different view of security, which is one that we've seen effective at uh, some very mature companies. But that's all I wanted it to is, say about it. No, it is, it is an interesting and completely opposite perspective that I, I like because exactly that was the problem on, on, a, lot of, uh, on a lot of framework or if you want tools more, enterprise driven that uh, and the feedback that i got on from a lot of people was it's hard to write your own rule or modifying or customizing existing rule and fine-tuning and tweaking and i found it it's hard frustrating yeah when you say okay you either just gonna exclude it as an exception or fine-tuning the rules is really complicated and you have this nested bucket of well it is either enabled or disabled by default so i agree with you having something flexible enough to say well, this is our library, check that this library is used or this method is used or a sequence, as you say, that method are used in this specific way because it's secure. Yeah, there's actually like an interesting use case for developers as well, because it lets them say like, oh, this is a business logic bug for our code, right? Like developers mm -hmm. have the most knowledge about how their code should work. So if you have new developers who are onboarding and you want to tell them like, you know, oh, this is how our code works or... Um, you know, this API is deprecated, you should use this one instead. Um, there's a lot of like implicit assumptions that you might write on a wiki page, but that is not as scalable as like it's not always enforced. checking. It's not enforced. It's just like, please remember to do this when you're doing something totally unrelated. Um, so it's governance versus continuous compliance and continuous testing. Yeah. That is one of my big subjects that I keep on talking about. It's like, you can write policy as much as you want, but you're never going to have the cop. They're going to go and check. So monitoring Trump's uh, compliance and policies because yeah. they are point in time and they're a piece of paper. It's not security because security is something that is sitting there monitoring and it's a dashboard in front of your face saying, red is wrong. Something has diverged from the norm. Maybe not red. So now, now we have fancy tools to color, <laughs> to paint it.
<laughs> I actually I actually saw the other day that one code analysis tool has um hired one of the Disney engineers to actually draw a completely different dashboard and view and has started representing the vulnerabilities in uh, uh um like skyscrapers and start arranging them in cities based on libraries, based on it's like it's a what? completely different view of a code. So a code like a city with districts and vulnerabilities as it's like it's it's going back. Sorry, it's just a rumble, but it just reminded me. Uh, and I'll send you the link and I'll include the link. Yeah, in I was the gonna post. say send me that. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh they had somebody from Disney Studio. Uh, that work on Tron and other and other CGI things. Um, I think also in Iron Man, talking about Iron Man, um, and has completely reshaped the dashboard in a completely different way. That you know we're used to seeing code scanning and dashboard in the same way, and bringing somebody that thinks completely left field. It was amazing. I was like, wow, I want to have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to see the uh, city of my code. That sounds cool. Yeah. It is a really cool idea. Maybe maybe I'll hire it for my startup if, if we're ever going to get a massive amount of budget for PC founding. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm excited to check that out. That'll be cool. Yeah, no, it was it was mind, well, mind-blowing. It was amazing to see. Um, I'll, I'll definitely send you the link, and I'll include the link in the in the comments. But, um, geez, we, we just... <laughs> I'm wise when I talk with you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We chatted at Absec Cali for like hours. <laughs> yeah, it's like we we go into the rabbit hole of application security, and God knows where we're gonna end up. But before before we close, uh, it's one one specific subject that I, I love to to take on, and maybe not in application security, but in a lot of threat in in a lot of what we do, threat modeling is so relevant and is perceived sometimes as a waste of time. So how do you suggest maybe people introducing threat modeling in the in the day in and day out or or what in which place to to insert threat modeling? What stage of the maturity? Yeah. Um one challenge a lot of companies have is uh you know with agile development software has been written uh, very quickly. We can't sit in on every meeting uh, to threat model like everything, like you just don't have time. Or if you did, you would do nothing else. Um, so there's a couple of ways uh, security teams have tried to scale threat modeling. So one is uh, by having developers building new features, fill out a like security questionnaire, just basically like, what are you building? Does it need to access sensitive data? Are you going to be um, parsing XML or doing other potentially sensitive things. Um, and basically it's like sort of a series of checkbox things that, uh, outputs like a risk score and mm -hmm. for things that are more risky based on what they're doing, uh, the security team can then manually, uh, meet with them to, to probe in a bit more detail. So the idea is like, here's like everything, uh, you don't, you don't do everything. It's just like, what are the most risky things by some sort of self-service developer filled out questionnaire. Um, mm -hmm. So I think uh, Max uh, from Slack gave a, a good talk about this um, and they released a tool called GoSDL and there's others, but basically the idea is like, hey, what are you doing? Is this risky? Okay, we'll talk with you. Um, another thing you can do is like add um, lightweight threat modeling to the development process itself. So as mm -hmm. during sprint, sprint planning, you have... Um, a developer say like, oh, this is what it needs to do. These are feature requirements. Um, but how could someone abuse this? Uh, and then how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? Um, so they might not think of every edge case, but it at least 
makes them think like, here's a couple of potential abuse cases that makes them uh, have more of a security mindset as they're building software. So again, this helps scale it because as a security engineer, you don't need to be in every meeting. You're having developers do it a little bit themselves. Um, so threat then, modeling in, and if you want the use story development or whenever anybody actually use stories, maybe a couple of questions or a couple of scenarios. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, Adam Shostak and a few others have a like a escalation of privilege card game that can be yes. sort of used to play as well. Uh, I haven't played it, um, but I watched uh, some talks uh, he gave about it, and uh, I've heard from other people that they the developers tended to find it quite fun, um, or at least fun slash interesting and useful. Um, uh, and then I think lastly, there's an idea of like a threat modeling as code, where you mm -hmm. sort of codify your security expectations as sort of security integration tests that continuously run. Um, I think uh, Abhay of um, uh, We45 has given a couple of talks about this, and they have like some open source tools that are pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I think security questionnaires, having developers ask themselves questions, and then like threat model as code is sort of the three main ways I've seen people scale threat modeling. It's amazing. Whenever I talk to you, whenever I read your email, I say, geez, I need to know more about this. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a bunch of links to all these things uh, in my slides. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, send me, the, uh, I'm going to put the, the, all the links of your TLDR, the presentation, and uh, this stuff uh, in the comment of the podcast so that people can refer to it later. But yeah, no, it's, jeez, uh, I want to I speak to you all day about <laughs> application security. Yeah. But unfortunately, we reach, we reach almost an hour. So I'd like to thank you, Clint, so much for your time. It's always an absolute pleasure. But before we let you go, can you give the audience a positive message about cybersecurity or any, any about our industry? Yeah, I think... Um... I think it's an exciting time to be in security. Uh, more and more things are moving online. Uh, many people are working from home now. Um, I think as more of our lives and as more of the world moves online, we have uh, an awesome opportunity as well as responsibility to secure uh, the systems that you know our families and friends and parents and grandparents use. Um, and I think uh, you know with great power comes great responsibility. So I think we have uh, <laughs> we have our work cut out for us. But I think. Overall, things are getting better. I think things are moving in the right direction in terms of um, more sharing, more collaboration, uh, more open source tools and methodologies that we can learn from each other. People are sharing what's worked. Um, so we still have a lot to do, but I think we have a, a lot cut out for us, but we can make a big impact. So let's go and do it. Yes, I love the positive message. Thank you very much, Clinton. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Sorry, we, we got a little bit too much excited about application security, but that's that's clean for us. <laughs> yeah, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, and actually, we, we, we're going to have Adam Churchak in uh, one of the next uh, podcasts, probably oh, nice. in a couple of podcasts. So please stay tuned if you want to know a little bit more about threat modeling. And I'm sure we're going to have Clint again back on the shows because you're never going to run out of topic to talk. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Clint. All right. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com.